Well, hey, everybody, good morning, and Happy New Year. It's 2024. It's pretty exciting. Um, I hope you guys have had a really great uh, Christmas and holiday break uh, over the last few weeks. We didn't have church last Sunday. Uh, I'm not sure what your Sundays looked like. I know I, I both really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to, to rest. Sundays are you know, very busy for us, but also I, I missed you all very much too. So I'm really excited for us to be able to gather again here uh, once again this, uh, uh, th- this new year. Um, my name is Joel. I don't think I said that at the beginning. I'm one of the pastors here at Rest City, and um, we're about to hop into our, uh, our message for the morning, but let me pray for us first. God, thank you that um, you have brought us back together again after we've um, spent some time away from each other. We've gone our separate ways. We've spent time with family. We've reflected um, on uh, the, the incarnation of your son, Jesus, the coming of him who has, has come to, to set us free, to, make us, uh, uh, to give us new life, like we'll talk about uh, this morning. Um, and uh, as the, the year has turned over, Lord, as well, um, we've had an opportunity uh, to reflect on newness, Lord, the opportunity for for rebirth, for second chances, for uh, new opportunities, God, which is um, exactly what the, the gospel is all about, exactly who, what you are all about, Lord. And so I pray that as we enter into this season together as a church, um, this, new, this new year, that you'd, you'd just be with us, God. Um, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a lot of you work for uh, organizations. I think you, if you work anywhere, you probably work you probably have a mission statement, right, or a vision statement, whatever, whatever they call it. And, and the, the point is that it's something that's supposed to clarify why you exist or what's most important to the organization, right? So I actually am going to read a few from some very, uh, very famous, popular companies and see if you can guess who, who they are based off of their mission or vision statement, okay? Sound good? All right, first one here. To entertain, inform, and inspire people around the globe through the power of unparalleled storytelling, reflecting, on, reflecting the iconic brands, creative minds, and innovative technologies that make ours the world's premier entertainment company. Does anyone have a guess what company that is? No, well, Disney, yeah. Marvel's a close guess. It's Disney, yeah. Okay, second one here. To offer a wide range of well-designed, functional home furnishing products at prices so low that as many people as possible will be able to afford them. Yeah, nice. That was really quick. Okay. To organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Google. Yeah, nice. Nice. Okay. Last one here. Uh, To improve every life through sustainable progress and innovation. Yes, nice. <laughs> I, had a, I had a second. I found a couple of different things on 3M's website to see if you get it. But we have multiple people here that work at 3M, so if no one got it, I was going to be really disappointed in you all. <laughs> um, okay. Now, Res City, we're not a business, um, and I think it's good for us as a church to, to remind that, to operate in a lot of ways differently than a business. But we do have, I think there's some wisdom in having a sort of mission or vision that sort of charts who we are and what we find important, what we want to keep central. And and our uh, mission statement is this, to glorify God by seeing people, our city, and the world made new in Jesus, our Savior and King. Um, We believe that God deserves glory, and he's given glory when he restores creation, um, which starts with making people new. And so we're called to be new, we believe, and to partner with God in making the world new around us as much as we can uh, in the present. 
But what does it look like to be made new? Well, it's, a very, it's very abstract, right? These mission and vision statements are very kind of um, very, very high, you know, up in the clouds. And so what does it mean to make that practical? Now, for us, when we think about what it looks like to make that vision practical, we use uh, four words to, to kind of make up language for us and how we describe what it looks like for us to live this out, to be made new, to glorify God. All right? And those four words are know, grow, go, and together. And this is something um, that we have uh, been trying to use for the last couple of years, especially in a lot of different ways. It started actually in the kids' ministry. That's actually who first started using it uh, at Res City. And, and the rest of the leadership thought that is such, a, such great language that we're going to use it for the rest of the church. I think it's really cool, actually, that that started uh, with the kids. Um, and so you see, like in weekly emails that we send out every week, we try to put everything we're doing into one of those four things. And it's how we structured, for example, our listening uh, tour questions that we did about a year ago. We tried to use those as a template for asking the different questions. And by no grow, go together, what we mean is by no choosing and continuing to follow Jesus, by grow, bearing fruit, Christ-like fruit, go, service and invitation, and finally together is doing all of those first three in community. It's kind of a how we do those things. Now, what we're going to be doing to, to kick off 2024 is going through these four concepts kind of in depth as a church. So uh, we want to offer a very complete, complete but also very brief picture for how, you know, basically how Red City views the, the Christian life. That's kind of the goal of this series. So I really do think you can reduce everything da- about being a Christian down into these four categories. It fits in one of these four in some way. And I think the goal as Christians is to become masters of these over a lifetime. A healthy discipleship, I think, includes uh, all of them working together in tandem in a church and in an Christ- individual Christian's life. That should be the goal. Uh, I think a lot of times we can live in one or two of these areas. We gravitate naturally towards one of them. And I think the goal is to assess that within ourselves and try to figure out how can I grow in the other areas too, to have a sort of a more healthy and I think full uh, picture of what it looks like for, to, to follow Jesus in a, in a full and healthy way, okay? And so we're going to try to go through these each in depth. And because of all that, I, I would really like for this series to be a sort of very foundational one for us as a church. Um, so we get our, we're all on the same page about what it looks like for us to, uh, to partake in the Christian life in, a, in an ordered but also very simplified sense, and it can be something for us to come back to, uh, to refer people to, um, and for us to build off of in the future. That's really my, my vision f- uh, for this series, and I'm really excited for it. And my hope is that you would think critically as we walk through this as well about your walk with Jesus in these four areas. Where am I strong at? Where do I gravitate towards naturally? You know, what's an area that maybe I can challenge myself in to grow more in maturity in my discipleship and following Jesus? And so the plan is for us to spend two weeks in each one of these words, trying to go into one, each one in depth. So it'll be an eight-week total sermon series, and I'm really excited for it. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're just going to hop right into the first uh, one right here. And what we're going to do today is we're going to study uh, the, 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 the concept of knowing God um, and then talk about some uh, implications for it. And knowing in a very specific sense, okay? So today is no part one. We'll do part two next week. 
And everything really grows out of this one. It's very, I think one of the things that I think is important to understand is these all build off of each other. And so this one is sort of the foundational, I think, cornerstone piece of all of the rest of them. Now, I don't know what you think of like when you think of the word no. I don't know what comes to mind when you describe what it means to know something. Okay? I have a guess, and I'm going to guess, like, it's going to be what I'm about to talk about here in a second, right? So, for example, let me use this, let me use this as an example here. Did you know that there are five basic kinds of taste? Is this something you guys have heard before, right? Um, any, anyone know what they are off the top of their head? It's okay. Sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and umami or savory. Um, I don't know why umami. I don't even know what that means, but it, it's one of the words you use uh, here to describe this. And apparently, like, your tongue has, like, five different um, spots on them where the five different flavors are tasted. It's also apparently in dispute in some way. I, I don't know. I'm not at all an expert, but um, that's sort of how we experience taste. That's how the tongue works. It's how taste works in the human um, body. And actually, there's a lot of research that says we're predisposed to like certain tastes. It's genetic. It's, it's, it's part of how we're born. Um, researchers have found like a food map maybe that outlines three clusters of food that are tied to genetics. And we might fall into one of those three and gravitate towards um, you know, one of these three different types, whether it's high calorie or highly palatable food, which would be like meat, dairy, and sweets apparently, strong tasting foods or acquired taste would be like alcohol or pungent vegetables, and then fruits and vegetables would be low-caloric food. Okay, so apparently all people fall into one of those three categories in terms of what type of tastes they tend to like. Um, and in, even beyond that, there's some other strange stuff, like some people are genetically predisposed to think cilantro tastes like soap, and which makes going to Chipotle a total nightmare for certain people, right? Okay, how many of you knew any of those things that I just said? Okay, a few, I'm seeing a few hands go up here, right? What kind of knowing is that? What kind of knowing are we talking about there? It's facts, it's information, it's statements, right? It's the kind of knowing that honestly is pretty useless. It's good for trivia, but you're not going to use it in any other way unless you're like a chef or something, right? It's, it's just kind of knowledge that sits in our brain and we don't really do anything with it. And actually, this is really, you know, someone could know all of these things without having ever eaten anything, right? You could not even have a sense of taste and you could have this information in your brain. You could know this very well without ever having tasted something sweet or bitter or sour, right? That's, that's the, the kind of information that this is. It doesn't really require any sort of experience of the, of the food itself. But there's a second kind of knowing in regards to taste that we have too, right? And it's the kind of knowing that we have when we eat something that is like so delicious, it sweeps us off our feet, right? Yesterday, Julie and I went to French Meadow to, to kind of get out of the house and hang out, um, and they have, a, they have a cake there. It's a triple chocolate mousse cake, and every time I go, I can't help but eat it. It is so delicious. Like, I love uh, this triple chocolate cake, uh, mousse cake so much. Now, imagine I told somebody this. I just, you know, I'm telling, I'm describing, like, it's my favorite cake, and you should, if you ever go to French Meadow, you should try it. And they say to me, well, that's really interesting. Which part of the five flavors on your tongue most light up when you eat this food? 
Um, do you think you're genetically predisposed to like sweet, highly palatable food because of this? And I'm a total food rube, so I would have no clue what they're talking about if they said that to me. I don't know how to describe my love of this food in those types of terms or categories. And you can tell, you can ask Julie about this, it drives her nuts. Uh, like, when she makes something and she's like, what did you think about that? Did you like it? And I'm like, it was very tasty. And she's like, can you describe more to me what you liked? And I literally, I cannot find language to describe what I liked about it, right? I don't know how to make triple chocolate mousse cake. I don't even really know what's in it. I don't know what mousse is. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I don't know what it is. I've heard the word before. I don't know what my genetics are, okay? I do not know how to describe. If you told me, like, what was in this cake by using a bunch of the language I used beforehand, and I'd never eaten it, and you would ask me, do you think you'd like this? I would have no idea if I would like it or not. I just know when I eat this cake, it's delicious, and I want to eat more of it, right? There's something innate in me. There's like an, a deep satisfaction and emotional awareness that I have when I eat this food that's satisfy it, satisfied by it and wants more of it, right? It's like I was born with a love of this taste. And the reason I bring all this up is because the kingdom of God doesn't start with, that, with knowing in that first sense that I talked about. Okay? We can't know our way to God through facts or propositions or information or Bible verses. Right? Anyone can know these. And in fact, there are lots of non-Christians who know things about the Christian faith, know the Bible really well, better than a lot of actual Christians. Right? But they themselves are not a part of the kingdom of God. So there has to be a different way that we come to know God. We cannot find his kingdom by accumulating knowledge in that first sense that I talked about. Knowing him in the way that I want to talk about today and actually becoming part of, uh, of the kingdom is something that we only know in a way that is closer to that second sense. Right? It's coming to know something that God has done in our hearts that has made him and his kingdom delicious to us and to want more of it. Now, before we move on, I really want to unpack this and talk about what, what I mean by this and study some scripture around it. But let me actually be really clear before I do. Knowing in that first sense that we talked about is also an incredibly important part of faith, too. And so what we're going to do next week is talk about that dimension of knowing as well and why it's really important. But the reason that we're not starting there is because we can, without knowing in this sense that we're going to talk about today, that stuff is totally worthless. So we have to start here. Now, to unpack all this, I want to go to John 3, John chapter 3. Um, in, it's, it's, it's early on in, in the book of, of John, and a man named Nicodemus meets with Jesus. Okay, so let me read uh, the first few verses of that to you, and then we'll start to kind of break down what's going on. Uh, verses 1 and 2, and then we're actually going to skip to verse 10 as well. There's a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Skipping to verse 10. Jesus replied, you, he's talking to Nicodemus here, you're a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand the things that I'm telling you. Okay, so Nicodemus is part of the Jewish uh, religious and political establishment of his day. 
And Jesus calls him in verse 10, he, he calls him Israel's teacher, or, or here, uh, you are a respected re- religious teacher, um, is what uh, he says in the uh, New Living Translation, which, which we have on the screen here. Um, this is probably some official title, actually, in the actual Greek that Jesus is using. We're not totally sure what it means historically, but we can infer that Nicodemus is someone who is a respected expert in the tradition and, and scripture of the Jewish people. And he's credentialed in some way because of all of the knowledge that he has about it. He's someone who's expected to explain it all to others, like a, like a professor or a doctor or a reverend. So having that title, Nicodemus is someone who knows quite a bit. Right? From the time he was a child, he's been accumulating uh, uh, knowledge with degrees and, and, or the equivalent of degrees in the ancient world. And based on that knowledge, he is someone who's intrigued enough by Jesus to go ask him some questions. He's curious. He says, we know that God has sent you to teach. Right? He's aware of this to some degree. His knowing is enough to get him interested. But the question is, is his knowing enough to take him further? And Jesus is going to tell him no. There's something else that you have to, there's some other sense of knowing that is going to take you into the kingdom of God. And despite being a teacher with all of this type of knowledge, Nicodemus can't understand it. All right, so here's what Jesus says to him. He replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one uh, can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Now, without going into this with any you know, real depth beyond what I'm about to do here, there are several word cues in this passage, um, specifically spirit and water, that kind of harken back to uh, uh, at least one passage in the Old Testament, um, and probably some more, where God promises that he's going to do some heart surgery on his people. All right, so Ezekiel 36 is the one that Jesus probably has most specifically in mind. And so the, the goal is that God is saying that there will come a time when his people will not just know him in the first sense, understanding the law that he'd given them and the, given them and the traditions that they lived in, but like, you know, like lawyers who know the law really well, but also know the loopholes, know the ways to exploit it, know how to get just up to the line without going over it, right? They're going to be people who have God's law written into their hearts so that uh, they sense what's good, but also desire to do what is good, right? That's what God has said he's going to do to his people. And so all of the learning that Nicodemus has done since birth can't do that thing to the heart that God had always said he was going to do to his people. What he needs is a new birth, to, and to grow in that, to reset himself into a new kind of life, the kind of life that only God's spirit can produce. And this is where the phrase uh, born again comes from. Now, I know that the phrase born again is, I'm going to guess it's one you've, you've heard before. Um, born again Christian can kind of have a bit of a negative connotation. Um, and I think it's kind of become a word that doesn't have a lot of meaning or honestly is like a, used to describe a, a political constituency today. Uh, but consider the, the depth behind it in terms of what Jesus is talking about when we think about it in its context. Jesus is describing uh, another act of creation that God is doing in the world, right? And just like God creates the world through original birth, 
and brings life out of it and creates all of our physical lives through it, now he's created a, a spiritual birth for us to live in as well. And Nicodemus had been born into this physical birth, and he'd accumulated uh, knowledge and credentials out of that, but none of that could get him into the kingdom. Jesus is saying that God creates a parallel birth for us to live into, like the old one, but also very different. And someone born of the Spirit will know God in a way that it is impossible to know from the first kind of knowledge. So Jesus' vision for living in this birth includes a sort of knowing of familiarity with God, like that of a father, right? Just like a, a child born grows to know the familiarity, familiarity that they have with their birth father, we have this, we're supposed to have the same kind of familiarity with our spiritual father, God, right? And Jesus lived in this reality, and it caught on with the early Christians. Here's some examples, okay? So Mark 14, verse 36, Jesus says, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. So Jesus has this sort of relationship with God where he was willing to listen to him, but also could cry out to him with the deepest parts of himself. Um, in Matthew 6, uh, verses 7 and then uh, verse 9, Jesus is directing his disciples on how they should pray. And he tells them, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. He's inviting them to the same kind of familiarity that he has with God. And we find in uh, the letter to the Romans that Paul writes uh, later on that they have adopted this same kind of language. These later Christians have adopted the same kind of language that Jesus is using to describe his relationship with God as Father themselves. They have been invited into that familiarity and have totally taken it on themselves. Paul writes, Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Now, when the early Christians and Jesus are talking about this, this is different than the sort of vague, like, you know, we're all God's children kind of language that you sometimes hear people talk about. Like, we're, that has nothing to do with familiarity with God. It's kind of a talking about solidarity that humans have with each other or something, right? The word Abba is not a formal word, kind of recognizing logically um, that someone is the father of another person. It's a highly unique and personal Aramaic word that you would use to relate to a very close parental relationship with, with your father, right? It's what you would say to him when no one else is around and you're in really deep, sort of serious, uh, affectionate conversation. And so Jesus had this very deep uh, emotional awareness that he was born of spirit and of God and was his father, okay? That sort of emotional awareness is much more like uh, experiencing and knowing the delicious taste of triple chocolate mousse cake than a removed knowledge of how taste works. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. And those of us who become born again, like Jesus is talking about in John 3, also have that same awareness. Okay? That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's the whole, I think, point of what John 3 is saying. Now, four points of, I want to end with, uh, with, with three different points of understanding and living in the spiritual birth kind of based on this passage, okay? That's how we'll spend the rest of the sermon here today. First off, first takeaway is Christianity is meant to be a religion of authentic awareness of what the living God has done, okay? Everything starts here. It's us living with authentic awareness of what God has done. Let me explain that, Okay? Um, not, for example, okay, if we stay in John 3, 
Not only is God our Father in the spiritual birth, but Jesus goes on to say, in what is one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, in John 3, 16, that he will give himself for the world to save it, to redeem it, and to make it new. Right? For God's, this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Right? Very famous verse. At its core, I think, being kingdom people is an emotional awareness that God, the God revealed to us in Jesus specifically, is calling us, he's wooing us, he's put a rock in our shoe that we can't get out no matter how hard we try to understand that he doesn't just love the world generally, but that he loves me. He hasn't just allowed himself to die for all sin, but he's given himself for me. He isn't just restoring the world in a big picture way, but he's restored me, and he's inviting me to partner with him in the restoration of the world. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. It's going from a, a big picture sort of understanding of who God is and what he's doing to understand how, understanding how I fit into that, seeing myself in actual relation to him. It's not abstract. It's an emotional awareness of authentic connection to the love of God the love of the God of the universe that has come to be known to us in Jesus. His spiritual life has been planted within us, and, it, and with it comes new affections, new loves, new desires, and new hopes. Now, Jesus didn't just talk about this. When we actually read about his life in the Gospels, we find that he practiced what he preached on a regular basis. He didn't just say that he had this sort of awareness and leave it there because we see him in constant dialogue with God. Jesus speaks to God. He cries out to him. He's not afraid to speak in deeply personal ways to him. That's in that Mark 14 passage that we read right there where Jesus is about to go to his death, but he's not afraid to tell God, to tell his Abba, I'm, this doesn't seem very fun. Like, is there another way that we could do this? Like, the honesty of that is the kind that you would not have with something that you are afraid of or don't have any sort of real deep connection to, okay? But Jesus lived in this emotional awareness that he had with God, and I think that's what it's supposed to look like for all of us. Now, there's no blueprint for how this spiritual birth works or looks from person to person. And I think the temptation for us is to sort of think it must look a certain way. And usually what we mean by that is however it looked for me to come into this emotional awareness, okay? But I, I think it's important for us to understand that the new birth isn't cookie cutter, right? The new birth is not cookie cutter. In verse 8, Jesus says, the wind blows, this is John 3 again, sorry, the wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can explain how people are born of the Spirit. Sometimes the recognition that we've been born again in this spiritual life is really dramatic. And you hear people talk about this in their, in their stories maybe of coming to follow Jesus. It's a very dramatic moment of repentance or crying out to God. Um, the most sort of famous example of this in, this in Scripture comes to us in the book of Acts, uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, the, the, the guy who wrote Romans, uh, that, that section of Romans we just talked about a second ago, um, he's on his own path, his own crusade, and Jesus appears to him in this sort of interruption 
of not just the actual literal path he's walking on, but sort of the path that his life had been taking up to that moment as well. And your story might be like that too. A lot of people have stories that kind of are similar to Paul's in some way. It's a very dramatic moment where Jesus, they feel like Jesus appears to them. There's some sort of stark moment of realization. It's very dramatic. It's very emotional. And I think it's really exciting to hear stories like that. It's a strong testimony or witness. But really often, it doesn't look like that either. All right? There's a really great example of this by C.S. Lewis, a very famous um, British Christian writer, and he's describing, I think, really well what it can look like for people other times. When he's writing about his realization of his own new birth, and it happened sometime on a ride in a motorcycle sidecar to a zoo with his brother, okay? Can't make that up. That is literally where he just believed that the spiritual birth happened to him. Um, Here's what he says. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, but when we reached the zoo, I did. I had not exactly spent the journey in thought nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless on the bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. Sometimes I think Jesus is with someone for a long time, but they didn't know that was the case um, before they started believing. I actually think his relationship with the disciples is like this a lot of times. They spent all their time with him. And you see as the story progresses that they come to you know, deeper awareness of who Jesus is, but they didn't believe right away. And it certainly was not linear for them. There's no Damascus Road moment for them. It's sort of a very gradual coming to understand who Jesus actually is. And I think that's a lot of people's story too. That's my story. Like, I don't have any major altar call moment um, where I would say that I realize that, you know, any of the stuff that Jesus is talking about here had happened to me. I don't remember any moment like that, right? And I think that's okay. Like, I don't remember my physical birth either, (laughs) but that doesn't mean that I wasn't born, right? Clearly I was. I think our own spiritual birth can be like that. Um, I used to think that there was something wrong with my story because I didn't have some dramatic uh, experience to share with people, but I think I've long since realized that's not the case. What really matters is that I have this emotional awareness um, that something has happened in my heart, that I'm all in on this, I'm invested, Like, I want to be, even when doubt or faith creep in, like, I want this to be true. I want this emotional awareness within me to be real. And I think that's the kind of place that we should focus on when we're looking for new birth, right? What comes after, not that it fits some cookie-cutter beginning. The point is that there isn't, like, a right way for this to look. It's as varied as the wind gusts on a windy day. For some people, it might be really quick and might be really easy. Like, they might be very excited for it to happen. But I think for other people, sometimes it can be difficult. It can be contested in some way. It might even take years for it to actually come about fully. Um, For some, it might come from influences that they had growing up. Maybe they grew up in church. They really don't even have a time where they didn't really feel like they were a follower of Jesus. For some, though, it might come later in life. Some some life tied to some crisis that they experience. For some, it might come through studying and learning. They might actually start out very intellectual, um, but it doesn't stay facts and knowledge and information. It starts to invade their heart and become more real to them than just something that is sticking in their head, right? But for some, it might be actually very anti-intellectual. It might be the result of even a mystical experience that they can't explain intellectually, but they believe is something real that happened to them. 
Okay? It's not linear. Rarely is it ever linear, right? It's messy, but so is physical birth, right? Physical birth is messy. It goes through seasons of ups and downs where you have big leaps, but then also regressions that come, right? There's never a guarantee at any point that we will have it all together either. It's going to never totally be pure, right? Aspects of our old birth, misconceptions maybe about our Abba are going to always remain like with any kid and their parent, but the point is that that can't negate what God has done because it's not tied to our correct knowledge in the first sense that I talked about, right? So that means there can be genuine spiritual birth in someone even if there are real serious doubts and questions mixed in there too, right? Uh, we have the capacity to be flat out wrong about some things when it comes to following Jesus and for there to still be genuine faith there, Right? And I think even it can include for some people a time where they don't look at all like someone who is following Jesus. Maybe they even have rejected him outright, okay? but that doesn't mean the story is over. It's good for us to keep that in mind, I think, when we see that in people. Now, I think this can feel dangerous or scary maybe because we come out looking different sometimes. Right? There are different traditions or there's different emphases that we have on our shared tradition. Right? There's disagreement that Christians have on big questions that are difficult to resolve even if they're things that are really important. Right? But the truth is, is that God is bigger than that and we know that's the case because he has put the spiritual life within many different people many different types of Christians throughout history, and we have to be ready to welcome those whom God has welcomed into genuine faith because they have the same spiritual birth that we've experienced too. And if we don't, we're in danger of dismissing something that God has done, and we can't be in the business of ignoring God, right? We cannot be in the business of ignoring God because really this is all about him. He is the one who ignites all of the stuff that we're talking about here. Right? If we continue on in this parallel, the book of Genesis tells us that the birth of creation came completely from God's ignition. Right? It's ex nihilo is the word that theologians like to use to describe it. All of Christian life, in a similar way, ultimately is the result of God's initiative too. It has to start with him. It can't start with us. Right? Just like in your, your physical birth, you didn't really do any of the work. You're just kind of along for the ride. That's how our spiritual birth starts too. If there's going to be spiritual life, it can only be where God has brought it into being. And that's how it continues as well. If new birth is the moment where God ignites spiritual life within us, it must grow as part of his spurring as we continue as well. Uh, Philip Jacob Spanner, he's a, a German Lutheran pastor from the 18th century. The, the way that he phrases it, I think, is helpful. He says, the new birth is the initiation of spiritual life, but renewal is its continuation. And so once the new birth has happened in someone, they begin a process, a lifelong process of continual renewal by the same spirit that brought new life into them in the first place. But the thing about it is, is it can be really easy for us to fall back on relying on our knowledge in that first sense to try to, our knowledge really about God, to try to be the thing that maintains us or renews us throughout the rest of our life, right? And so we have to be on the lookout for that, okay? We can't confuse knowing about God with actually knowing God, Right? And that's a, that's a, a difference of, 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 of one word in there, right? Knowing God and knowing about God, but it is such an important one. Because I think, unfortunately for some, even very genuine faith coming from new birth can turn into a love about 
of just of our thoughts about God. Things we've learned or memorized or maybe reasoned on our own in some way, but which really have no bearing on uh, helping us to be renewed in the day-to-day. Okay? And this is a false form of faith. In fact, Karl Barth, he's a Swiss theologian, has very strong uh, language to describe that. He says, the lowest reaches of hell are reserved for those who are more interested in their thoughts about God than God himself. It's a pretty, pretty strong statement. And it's, certainly it's, it's hyperbole, right? But I think it's important for us to understand the force of that. Right? Another way that we could put all this is this. What good is it to know all about triple chocolate mousse cake but never eat it? Uh, are you actually regularly knowing the Abba? Are you, is authentic awareness part of your regular walk with Jesus? Right? That's the question that I want you to be thinking about. Julie and I, one of our favorite shows to watch together is The Great British Baking Show. We watch it a lot, and I do learn some things about baking on there. Uh, Not very much, and I'll be honest, there's still a lot I don't understand, but it is fun to learn about baking from it. And one of the things you see on that show is a lot of really good baking. Right? You, you see on the screen, stuff looks really tasty. And you hear the judges, Paul and Prue, they'll say things like, oh, this is a very good bake, good job. Like, they'll say that to you. So like, we're, we're thinking, well, this is really good food that's being made on the screen. But imagine how like, awful and crazy it would be to decide that the best form of enjoyment of the goodness of the kind of food that's being shown to us on the screen is to just watch other people talk about it. Right? To hear the bakers talk about their methods and for making it and the flavor, you know, the flavors that they use, and filling our brain with just uh, facts from it and trying to decide, well, this would be good because, you know, it, it, this is the method they took or the flavors that they said they used. The best form of enjoyment of the type of food that is on the screen on a show like uh, Great British Bake Off is to make it yourself or go to a bakery and eat it on your own. That's the best way to experience the food on that show. Right? And I think in the same way, we can settle for our thoughts and opinions of God, but God wants us to taste and see his goodness, to spend time with him, to build that authentic emotional awareness of who he is, to know his goodness in a deeper sense than just facts or information. Right? In Psalm 34, verse 8, the psalmist writes, Open your mouth and taste. Open your eyes and see how good God is. Blessed are you who run to him. We can't be blessed by God's goodness if we don't run to him, if we don't taste and see on a regular basis, okay? Goodness is not something to be read about in books or thought about abstractly. It's supposed to be felt and known, okay? That's what makes it so good. That's what makes us want more of it, is by experiencing it. And so we need to continue to eat and taste of God, to let his good taste fill us and satisfy us. There's something about tasting and seeing and knowing God is good through his spirit that makes us able to produce good, right? By letting God's goodness flow from us to the world, to be loved so that we may be people who love others, to be forgiven and set free so that we may be able to do the same for others, to be restored and healed. That allows us to be restorers and healers, okay? But without tasting God's goodness, nothing spiritual can truly come out of us in a meaningful way. Remember what Jesus says in, in, in John 3, 6, humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. 
That means that we've got to find time to create an environment of authentic emotional awareness of God and his love and his goodness again and again. Partake, taste and see that he's good so that that goodness can flow out of us. Right? And so I want to, to, to give you some sort of challenge or something to think about, a takeaway from this. Think about, do I have elements of knowing God in my life? Maybe start, if you don't feel like you have this, start by doing it once a week if you have to and commit to it, right? Like a phone call that you do with your parents, right? You commit to calling them once a week or something like that, right? Do that with God as well, right? Let it grow from there. Open yourself up to him. If he's called you to follow him and invited you into spiritual birth, he will let himself be known to you again and again. And when he does, he will root us. He will give us security and attachment. He will fill us with love for others. He'll speak to any deep shame and guilt that we have. He'll remind us of his love for us. He'll remind us of our identity as new creation brought about uh, into new birth through the birth that he's given us. This knowing has the power to guide us and give us wisdom and encouragement and hope. It lets us know that we're worthy because God has done what he's done to our hearts. And it gives us a blueprint for how we can be people who love others and are healers and restorers in the world. And it's only here that the rest of the stuff that we're going to talk about in this series, we're going to talk about growing, going, serving other people, all that kind of stuff, it has to start here. It really, truly does. Now, as we close the sermon, I want to end with this. I think it's really important that we uh, say this as well. If you've never felt like you've known this kind of awareness of God and his goodness, maybe you don't know if this spiritual birth has happened in you, or you uh, want to taste and see, you've never tasted and seen God's goodness. If you're feeling a longing to do that right now, I would actually say that in and of itself is God producing that within you. I really think it's as simple as that. I don't think it's that complicated. That longing that God gives us to woo us, I think that's evidence of a heart that God has already been working on. A heart that wants to see him as father, that wants to be his disciple, that wants to know that love, I think is a heart that God has seeded this spiritual birth within. So just respond to that. Just walk in it. Just let it grow and develop. It's, I think it's really, truly as simple as that. And from there, the whole spiritual life begins and is waiting for you to step into to taste and see. We're going to enter into a time of, of communion and worship here to close the rest of the service off. And one of the things about communion is it is a chance for us to symbolically taste and see of God's goodness, right? When we, when we take communion every Sunday, we are tasting um, the bread and the, and, and, and the cup that represent Jesus' body broken and shed for us. Like we talked about before in that famous verse from John three sixteen, Jesus gave himself up for the world, for you and me specifically, so that we may be people who are made new, who live in that newness and have a hope of a future. And when we uh, take communion every Sunday, we are tasting in a physical sense, uh, but also in a metaphorical sense of seeing God's goodness and love for us. So as you come to the communion table, be refreshed by that. Taste the actual physical food and drink, but as you do, consider that you're tasting God's love and goodness and grace for you as well. Anyone can partake in this uh, communion on Sunday morning, just provided you are someone who has been born again. And if you'd like prayer in the back, someone will be waiting for you to do that as well. Let me pray for us, and then we'll enter into that time. Lord God, we thank you that you uh, bring about new creation in us. You bring about new birth in us so that we can be people who don't just know about you, 
God, but can go much further than that in knowing you deeply, God. We, uh, we're so thankful for that. Um, I pray that you would help to grow and develop this new birth within us all, God, that we can be people who have taste and seen your goodness and are good because of it and can go and do good in the world um, because they have known it, Lord. They've experienced it. They've been made new by it, Lord. That's the whole point, Lord. And I pray that you would make that true within the the, the people of Resurrection City Church, God, and that we uh, can be people who mirror this reality well to the world around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.